This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achoo sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And great to be here live on a Sunday morning on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. A good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome into your radio doctor as we come to you on what is the final Sunday in the month of April, Autism Awareness Month. And with that, I bring in the good doctor, Dr. Marianne, joining us uh, to take you through what's going to be, Dr. Marianne, a great, great live show today. Thank you, Joe, and welcome to our listeners. As you say, it's the last Sunday in April, complete with April showers. And you recall this is Autism Awareness Month. Yes, Joe, but we also bring your attention to April as Transplant Awareness Month. And today we're very fortunate to have two physicians from Temple University Hospital who will speak about organ transplants, but also the additional challenges brought on by COVID for our transplant patients. We'll also hear the beautiful story of Christine, a young woman who received the gift of a kidney transplant from a living donor, a total stranger, and how it has given her a second chance on life. And then stay tuned to hear a fascinating report about airports as super spreaders of infection and, of course, this week's Your Real Champions. So I'll start by introducing Dr. Kartik Chinoy, an associate professor of thoracic medicine and surgery from Temple University Hospital. He's a specialist in pulmonary and critical care with a focus on lung disease and lung transplants. More than ever, we need his help. COVID-19 is a very complicated puzzle with many faces. Welcome, Kartik. Hi, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Yes, thank you. What are you seeing in terms of activity at Temple? So we're actually seeing a large influx of COVID patients. Uh, and Temple actually probably has the largest cases in the in the in the region right now, but you know we put a great deal of time and effort into preparing for this surge. We implemented a separate wing of the hospital uh, in order to separate the COVID patients from the other medical patients, and then additionally, we come up we came up with like protocols for screening and triaging patients and where to put them treatment algorithm, which involves protocolized use of medications, and enrollment in novel clinical trials. Um, I would like to say, though, this has been a kind of a group effort that involved administration, nursing, environmental services, physical therapists, and physicians across multiple specialties. Uh, The last part about that, though, is we also have been doing a lot of telemedicine, and we even do telemedicine rounds to go over each case uh, and admission to make sure each patient is getting the best care they can 
uh, regardless of what service they're on. Sure. And so that's uh, patients in general, especially if you concentrate on lung disease and pulmonary care, that's even separate from transplant patients. And I know that Temple has an outstanding lung center. Uh, Yes. I mean, we're... um but we're a fairly world-class lung center. We uh, uh, see people from all over the region, but also additionally a lot of uh, patients will come in from outside of the region in order to be evaluated for advanced lung therapies, and transplantation is definitely one of them. Sure. So, Karti, tell us, um, with coronavirus, what exactly does it do to the lungs? I think people need to understand that a little better. So it's the inflammation in the lungs that really uh, uh, starts off with tissues. So, you know, when you have a lot of inflammation in the lungs, that basically um, can cause patients to become ill fairly quickly, needing more and more support, whether it's regular oxygen. And sometimes when they get more ill, they require higher flows of oxygen and specialized types of oxygen there. And when they get very, very ill, sometimes they need uh, uh, ventilators. But along with the inflammation that we've seen, we also have been seeing uh, increased risk of blood clots in the legs, which can then travel to the lungs. We call those pulmonary emboli, and that basically blocks the flow of blood towards the lungs. So you're kind of fighting two battles. You both have the inflammation within the lungs, which you have to treat with uh, anti-inflammatories and antiviral medications, and also the blood clots. So this is why COVID is really uh, difficult to treat, especially in those individuals that do become critically ill. And I'm sure you're seeing every variation of it, some people who are mildly ill and then all the way to severely ill. So let's talk about transplant patients, if we may. Um, I know Temple has a multidisciplinary team approach. Tell us about that, if you would. So, you know, the top you know, when we evaluate someone for transplant and additionally when we take care of them post-transplant, there's a multidisciplinary team. So it involves surgeons, pulmonologists, uh, additionally a a whole slew of nurses, which are the backbone of the program to help manage the patients. But um, we also bring in people from other specialties, uh, gastroenterology to manage some of the esophagus diseases that people have, um, infectious disease to help us manage um, uh, special infections that transplant patients can get, uh, the nurses, physical therapists, social workers, and even psychologists. So it's a a huge team really all put together uh, to support the patient through the pre-transplant phase and additionally uh, the post-transplant phase as well. So it's a really well-oiled machine that you think of everything, and you bring up even psychologists to make sure that the that the patient and is is mentally prepared, um, and it's it's a big process. So how has COVID affected the transplant program? I know transplants from living donors, say for kidneys, sometimes a portion of a liver, they're on hold right now. But tell us about how it's affecting uh, your work. So, I mean, to clear a, a donated organ from a deceased brain-dead patient, uh, we're, we're more likely to ask for specialized imaging of the chest, CT scans, um, and then additionally any testing that's done on, uh, on the donated organ. We usually request uh, specialized COVID testing from uh, 
uh, sputum samples, which is like mucus from the lungs, or uh, if they do undergo special uh, procedures such as bronchoscopy, we actually ask the um, the material from that to be sent uh, for specialized COVID testing. Mm-hmm. And how about the recipients too? I mean, you're right. You're you're making sure that the donor organ doesn't have any problems. And then how do you get the recipient ready? That's a big process for them too. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting, and that's actually uh, some of our focus that we've been doing uh, at Temple. So, you know, obviously there's a risk for donor transfer to the recipients, but you have to realize that many of the recipients that are waiting at home, waiting for transplant, have families, families that are often essential workers, and so they actually have a risk of developing COVID to begin with. So uh, we've tried to put as many of our pre- and post-transplants on uh, a telemedicine app called HGE Healthcare, which was developed uh, uh, in conjunction with Temple Lung Center. And what this does is it actually monitors their symptoms on a daily basis. And if it triggers a warning, a nurse will call them, go over their symptoms. And if we feel like they need to be triaged further to either needing COVID testing or treatment of their underlying lung disease, uh, we will go ahead and do that. Yes. And I think telehealth is, is going to become one of our new norms. I hate that expression. We're all using that for different um, epiphanies that we're having during this crisis, but it, it's really helpful, and it, and it is a way to protect our patients. So then what about um, after a transplant and the patient's sent from home? You're going to depend on telehealth more for that too. Oh, absolutely. So. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's some subset of patients that we will need to bring in to to evaluate face-to-face after they're discharged for transplant, but Mm -hmm. most of the visits we have really kept uh, to telemedicine visits. We're trying to keep these uh, very high-risk patients at home uh, in order to avoid being exposed exposed to COVID-19. So, the what happens is, is they actually keep the regularly scheduled visit appointment. However, the nurse will call them the day before, review their medications, any new symptoms, any problems that I need to address the next day. Um, and then I will call them the next day, go over their uh, post-transplant care, go over their medications again, but additionally screen them again for COVID. And then obviously any testing that needs to be done, I'll loop back with the team and uh, we can get that uh, uh, taken care of for them. Uh, but again, we also uh, put these patients on the HGE healthcare app to monitor their symptoms and alert us sooner to potential trouble in the post-transplant patient, whether it's due to COVID or even other issues that could be normal complications of post-transplant care. Sure, and, and I would think, and I've said this before, when I first heard about telehealth, or telemed, I thought, gosh, I want to be able to put my hands on the person's belly. It's hard for me as a GI doctor to assess somebody. But for breathing issues and lung disease, you can see the patient's face. You can tell if they're comfortable or if they're struggling with their breathing. You can see so much with telehealth. It's it's really incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I have to admit it's a, it takes, as a physician, it takes a little bit of getting used to simply because, you know, as you said, you're used to like putting your hands on the patient. And additionally, 
I think patients expect to be touched and uh, listened to and, you know, examined uh, when they come into the come into the office. But nonetheless, like with the risk right now, we we have to revert to telehealth. And I think in the coming future, this will uh, be a tool that we use in conjunction long term with regular uh, face to face office visits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, um, the message that you want to share today is that your program is still in operation despite COVID, and you're there to evaluate the urgency, each case-by-case decision, and with the telehealth visits, you're better able to understand. And in our last moment, what would your message be? So absolutely. I would say that we are open but we are evaluating each patient that calls in, let's say someone calls in for a new visit, um, to whether um, we kind of go over some of their previous history, go over some of the records that are sent to us, and kind of call them and triage them as to, like, do you need to come in now to be evaluated because you're, uh, you're, you're at risk of needing a transplant very soon, or can you wait? Um, additionally, all of our other visits that could say uh, they want to be seen and want to at least have a televisit, we will set that up for them, go over their symptoms, talk to them about transplant so they can understand some of the nitty-gritty details uh, of transplant, and uh, we can go from there. So um, that's used in conjunction with the patient. So if the patient uh, has a lot of concerns, concern that they need transplant sooner, uh, we will be able to talk to them and talk talked about what transplant is, and then if we feel like they definitely need testing now, we can get it done. Good. Well, thank you so much, Kartik. I know you're working long, hard hours, and we're very grateful that you joined us. Stay well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. All right, good opening segment here on Your Radio Doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We're just getting started with Dr. Marianne as we come to you uh, on this Sunday. The show rolls on, and throughout the remaining part of the show, we're going to introduce you to the Swab Squad. Coming back from each commercial break, Doc is back on the other side. Hi, Alan. I'm Jeff Salvatore. I am the site coordinator for the drive through testing. Um, and I think the nurses can say that I kind of hold them to a high standard. And this is a very scary time, and we're all nervous and feeling a bunch of different um, emotions. But at 8 o'clock when we open, I need you to level up, and I need you to get out there and test your patients. So every morning we kind of come together and we talk and boost ourselves up and how we're going to be able to 8 to 5, stay focused and do our job and take care of these patients. And level up just has that message, and we listen to it often in the morning to uh, boost ourselves up. And welcome back, everyone, to your radio doctor. Uh, great shout-out to the Swab Squad. Uh, Dr. Marianne will play some audio drops from their appearance on Ellen this week. A job well done by all of the Jefferson nurses and all of the frontline workers leveling up every single day. Thank you, Joe. Welcome back. We continue with another physician from Temple University Hospital, Dr. Aaron Mishkin, Assistant Professor and Specialist in Infectious Disease with a special interest in the infections seen in transplant patients. Welcome, Aaron. Hi. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Marion. Good morning. 
As an infectious disease specialist, what is your role in the process of organ transplantation? Are you part of that multidisciplinary team? Absolutely. Um, as part of the multidisciplinary team, I often see patients both before and after transplant. Uh, oftentimes, the pulmonary team or one of the other uh, transplant subspecialists has a question. For example, the patient has had a previous infection. They want to know the best way to manage that in the transplant and post-transplant setting. Or there's a, an allergy to a particular antibiotic that they're planning to give in the operating room. Or perhaps the patient was born abroad and uh, may have been exposed to some different pathogens, potentially parasites uh, in their youth that there's a concern could reactivate uh, post-transplant. So those are some of the common pre-transplant questions that I receive. Sure. And it's so interesting when you bring these things up that if a person has a history of living outside of the U.S. and they've been exposed to a parasite or something, you have to think of all of those puzzle pieces before you uh, decide whether a person's appropriate and, and how to help them. Now, we're talking about lung transplants today in particular, but I know you also uh, oversee patients that have kidney and pancreas transplants, uh, liver, heart. So your experience is so broad, and we're lucky to have you today. So then you, you help to prepare patients, and then how about during the hospital stay when the person has their surgery? Sure. So uh, oftentimes, and I, I believe uh, Dr. Kartik and I went into this a little bit, um, when a donor is being evaluated, uh, if there's any concerns, uh, I am often called to take a look at the donor potential donor's chart and see if it would be an appropriate donor. And then uh, during the transplant hospital stay and afterwards, uh, sometimes patients will get infections, sometimes associated with just the surgery or uh, being on a ventilator or as part of their hospital stay. Usually we're pretty good about managing and preventing those types of infections, but invariably they do occur. Sure. Maybe they're, they're a catheter from their bladder or something that could happen to anybody who has surgery, I guess. Exactly. And, and initially in the post-transplant time period, uh, those are the types of infections that we see, the things that we would see in any uh, critically ill patient uh, who yes. would be undergo any type of surgery. Mm -hmm. Now the patient... Uh, does well in the hospital and you send them home, and they're on medications to suppress their immune system. So tell us about that. Sure. So there's a number of different medications that we use to um, suppress someone's immune system. And the reason why we need to suppress a transplant recipient's immune system is that so their immune system doesn't attack that organ and reject that organ. We worked very hard to get them that organ and we want to try to keep it uh, as healthy as possible. As a side effect of reducing the immune system, as you can imagine, uh, that reduces our, uh, or the transplant recipient's ability to fight an infection. So uh, as I was saying, initially post-transplant, uh, a lot of the infections and things that we see are related to the surgery itself. But as we get further away from transplantation, uh, that's when we sometimes see infections and Often the most types, um, common types of infections that we see are those that are associated with just living out in the community. So uh, these individuals are at risk for developing pneumonia or developing urinary tract infections, or developing colds or upper respiratory tract infections. So we do see those types of common infections. And then depending upon what type of organ has been transplanted, sometimes we see those patients getting 
infections that are more specific to their transplant. For example, sometimes patients who have received a kidney transplant uh, will get urinary tract infections, and oftentimes they don't. But if they do, they may um, it may be secondary to um, uh, the way the surgery was performed or just the risk associated with the kidney and immune suppression. You explained this so clearly and so well. It's one of the best explanations I've ever heard, really. Um, so post-transplant out in the world, these people have to be so careful with exposure, um, when they, especially, I guess, when they go for lab tests or doctor's offices. And I know we have a family member who had a transplant, and they were vigilant about asking people that came into their home long before COVID, please wash your hands. And how about what other advice would you give to your patients that are out in the world? Sure. So the patients that are uh, post-transplant, we do a number of things to try to reduce their risk of infection. So first off, I just want to talk about the types of infections that they've had in the past that there's a concern could reactivate. Um, so, for example, if a, an individual had chickenpox sometime in their lifetime, there's a risk that they could reactivate to develop shingles. And mm. early on in the first few months, sometimes to a year out, we do give uh, preventative antiviral medicines to prevent shingles or to prevent uh, other similar viral infections from reactivating. We also do that for some other types of infections, um, and that depends on the type of transplant and the, the status of the donor and the recipient if they've seen those infections sometimes in their life. So we are actively thinking about those types of infections. With regards to patients being out in the world and in contact with others, there's a number of steps that people can take, and these are the types of things that we've been recommending even prior to uh, the current uh, coronavirus outbreak. And a lot of those things are common sense hygiene type things. For example, we've always recommended to patients to be very vigilant about washing their hands, about uh, touching surfaces, the types of things that you're seeing more and more in the news uh, now. Uh, there's other things, uh, for example, our lung transplant recipients, especially in the first few months to year post-transplant, we recommend that when they go into a healthcare setting that they do wear a mask, and that's something that we've historically recommended, and that's to try to minimize um, them uh, acquiring any sort of respiratory viral infection that could uh, have a negative impact on their freshly transplanted lung. Other things that we recommend are trying to uh, be really aware of the food that you're eating. Is it at the appropriate temperature? So, you know, we always hear about patients who have, or, or individuals who have eaten um, a salad, a tuna salad, egg salad, things that uh, should be appropriately refrigerated uh, but weren't, and then they go on and they get an illness. Those are the types of things you need to be extra careful about if you're a transplant recipient. Likewise, um, buffets, family-style food, family-style restaurants, you just need to be really aware of who's also dipping into that food that you could be sharing. Sure. And then you told me that uh, you routinely ask people not to travel outside the region for the first year. Now, I wanted to ask you, Aaron, are transplant patients at higher risk for COVID necessarily? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think that they are at um, higher risk for complications associated with COVID. I think that oftentimes patients have been more aware of the types of things they can do to reduce their risk by coming in contact with individuals and surfaces who are potentially contaminated. Um, so I think they're, they're already in that mindset and they've had some training and expertise um, in trying to reduce their risk of acquiring the infection. Unfortunately, because their immune system is a little reduced, uh, 
it, it seems like based on some of the data that's coming in, when they do get the coronavirus, it's a little worse for them. And uh, Temple's participating in some uh, studies. Uh, there's a registry that's being run out of the University of Washington that we're participating in for our transplant recipients. And uh, internally, we're keeping a close eye on some of those types of scenarios. And so, just like anybody, they have to avoid crowds. Uh, telehealth is going to come into play and maybe minimize their blood draws, social distancing more than ever for these folks, and washing their produce. And they can always visit the CDC to explain how to be careful with produce. And you told me a great idea, maybe with their groceries, say cereal. Toss the cardboard box and, and just store the um, the plastic bag of cereal in, in another container. And I think another thing that you told me is really important is to remind your patients to get their medical supplies for 90 days, excuse me, a 90-day supply. Don't be checking it the day before. Check at least a week in advance. That's right. And uh, most insurance companies now have allowed patients to get 90-day supplies or have waived the early refill uh, requirements. So it is easier for not just transplant recipients, but for other mm -hmm. uh, patients to get their medication refills a little earlier. Yeah, and to think about having their meds mailed or delivered by pharmacy, it's, it's one less exposure for them. Are there any particular medications that you use to treat uh, COVID and transplant patients or pretty much the same as any COVID patient? So at, I, I believe Dr. Shanoi was explaining a little bit. At Temple, we do have some clinical trials and some advanced therapies that are available to us. Um, some of those advanced therapies and clinical trials are closed off to transplant recipients, and some of them are available. So we do have special uh, medications and special advanced therapies that are available to transplant recipients if they were to acquire the coronavirus. Uh, and how we pick is... It's really sitting down with a multidisciplinary team. It's usually run by the pulmonary service in concert with uh, rheumatology, hematology, and infectious diseases. And uh, based on the patient's labs and other characteristics, we'll decide on a therapy to give them, regardless of if they're a transplant recipient or, or a general patient. Well, it's an, an incredible network that you have. And I wanted to mention that one of the things I learned from talking to you before is that if a family member... Um, in the home of a transplant patient has COVID symptoms or they've just returned from a high-risk area, you're saying, you know what, that person has to isolate in another place, either stay with another family member or in a hotel. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Your time is precious. We learned so much from listening to you. Stay well. It was my pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you. All right, good stuff with Dr. Marianne and her two special guests to open up uh, the first two segments of the show. When we come back on the other side of the commercial break, Dr. Marianne introduces you to the ultimate Good Samaritan. Back in a moment. Amazing, amazing stuff. Great story. Glad to share some of that audio for uh, for the Swab Squad. Now back to your radio doctor uh, as Dr. Marianne introduces the Delaware Valley to what she has described as the ultimate Good Samaritan. Doc, all yours. Thank you, Joe. Now I'd like to share the story of a young woman who received the gift of a kidney transplant from a living donor, a total stranger at that, the ultimate Good Samaritan. Christine, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, how old were you when you received your kidney transplant? I was 30 years old. It was 2008. Oh, my goodness. 
Tell us, what led to a kidney transplant in a woman of such a young age? Yes, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 13. Um, I have, I'm known as a brittle diabetic, which just means that I have severe highs and lows, and it's very difficult to control. Um, this has led to organ damage. So by age 26, I was having trouble emptying my stomach, and so I needed a feeding tube inserted to maintain my nutrition. By age 27, my vision was affected. I had retina problems and glaucoma, and at this point, I have no vision in my left eye, and my right eye, I have partial vision. So while all of this was happening, my kidney function was declining. And you were facing dialysis, I'm yes. sure. Yes. And I'm familiar with your story, Christine, so uh, I'm sure that that's a point when your doctor said you really need to think about a kidney transplant. That had to be a terrifying time for you and your family after 16 years. Yes, it was. Um, I had been battling diabetes for around 16 years at that point, and now I have a new challenge of a kidney transplant or being on dialysis for the rest of my life. And what a fork in the road. Uh, what was the next step that you took after deciding to have the transplant? Well, my doctor recommended that I be put on a waiting list for a cadaver kidney. Mm. Uh, it was also recommended that I try and find a living donor, which is the best alternative. Um, so my whole family... Me. Yeah, your whole family joined the search. You contacted local newspapers, churches, community centers, and tell us about your alumni groups. Yes, I contacted my high school, the Academy of Notre Dame, and I also contacted my college, St. Joseph's University. I was a member of a sorority at St. Joe's, and their philanthropy just happened to be juvenile diabetes. So thousands of flyers were distributed by the sorority around the community in an effort to find a living donor for me. And then a donor stepped forward. How did you feel when you got that call? I was excited, but I was also scared. Um, I was feeling horrible. My energy level was low. I was weak. I had a lot of swelling in my legs. And I I just, I was feeling horrible, and I didn't even know if I would make it through the surgery. Yeah, and, and I know the first donor went through the testing, and in the end wasn't even a match, and then came dialysis. For how long were you on dialysis? Yes, I was on dialysis for exactly three months. And then, out of the sky, fell a second angel. Another stranger stepped up. What went through your mind? I, I could not believe that another stranger was willing to donate a kidney to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an amazing feeling, and um, the, this, at that point, time. yes, mm -hmm. I, I had been on the dialysis, and at this point, I was ready. I was ready for the surgery. I had no fear, and I got a call. It said, your donor's ready. Your surgery is going to be on Tuesday. And it was a success. A success. 
Mm-hmm. And, and then you were in recovery, and you remember waking up, and what did you see? I saw the nurse remove the bag that was attached to my catheter, and the bag was full of urine. And I remember crying because I had made, I had made the urine, and it's something that I'll never take for granted again. It was truly a bag of gold when you think about it. Yes. And you told us that the surgery for you was amazingly easy, a small incision. They tucked the new kidney in your belly, and we've heard that it's a lot harder for the donor. But within weeks, tell us how you were feeling. Within weeks. I felt fantastic. My legs weren't swollen. I could actually see my ankle bones. I had more energy. I just I could think clearly, and I was walking several times a day. I, I just felt wonderful. New life. You enjoy, you enrolled in the class. Tell us at the yes. So I started um, taking class in ceramics at the Museum of Art. Uh, I was able to do some volunteering in the transplant community. Mm-hmm. I was able to enjoy times with family and friends at home and at the shore. Uh, I was able to travel more. I spent a lot of time in Maine, and I was even able to fly to California and Florida, something I hadn't done in years. Right. And, Christine, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about being a living donor, quickly? I would say that it is the ultimate gift, the gift of life. Uh, it gave me a new life, and I thank God and my donor every day for the past 12 years. Yeah. This is a story of courage grace and inspiration and i think for our listeners there are two messages and thank you christine thank many you. people don't understand that diabetes is a lot more than giving up sugar it can ravage a person and the other message people who have transplants take medicines to suppress we heard that so they don't reject their new organ but every day for a transplant patient is a covid day they they're hyper vigilant about hand washing avoiding crowds and other and asking other people to wash their hands so so i ask you our listeners Think of Christine and all that she and her family have had to bear to arrive at today, 12 years after transplant. Maybe her story will motivate us even more, wash our hands, social distancing, because high risk is not just in older people. Many people like Christine who are younger and look healthy are at high risk. Christine is especially beautiful when you see her, but now that you hear her, you realize she's even more beautiful on the inside and her devoted parents are absolute saints. I've watched her rise above every challenge and never complain. How do I know so much about Christine? Because she is my niece. God bless you, Christine. I love you. Thank you. Dr. Marianne, delivering a great segment to the listening audience. Back in a moment. And back here on this Sunday, welcome back into Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Mary Ann. We thank the entire Delaware Valley and everybody listening on Radio.com for tuning in this Sunday to what Dr. Mary Ann has been a great, great uh, addition of Your Radio Doctor. Thank you, Joe. We talk about decreasing spread of COVID. Last week, we talked about how to wash our hands. This week, let's talk about why. Now, pandemic means a disease that spreads to an entire country, in this case, the entire world. And a recent article in a journal called Risk Analysis 
gives a fascinating look at airports as a significant source of the problem. The lead author is from MIT and reports that, get ready for this, 30% of people do not wash their hands after using the bathroom. And of the 70% who do, many spend fewer than 15 seconds and might not use soap at all. So the theory is disease will spread faster in locations with crowds, lack of adequate air supply or good hygiene. Plus, airports have many surfaces we touch frequently. Self-check-in screens, armrests on the chairs in the boarding area, water fountains, tray tables, laboratory handles, all are highly contaminated. Now, add travelers from every corner of the globe, especially those airports with the highest traffic. They're considered super spreaders of disease. Researchers developed a model that simulated spread of infectious disease with movement of passengers through airports and planes. They looked at flight distance, connections, time spent in the airport, and how people interact with their surroundings. They looked at 120 airports that might be likely to spread disease because they have direct flights to the largest airports in the world, and they connect the east to the west. The data suggests that at any given moment, only 20% of people in airports have clean hands. If 30% clean their hands, we could decrease risk of spread by 24%. If 60% of people wash their hands, we could reduce risk of spreading pandemics by almost 70%. So they believe that increasing hand washing through public policy and campaigns and easier access to hand washing, maybe if we had sinks throughout the airport that weren't just in the restrooms, we could easily reduce the risk of mass global pandemics. That's just amazing to me. Now let's talk about this week's you're real champions. Are you a dog person, Joe? Well, that's a big fat yes for me, uh, Marianne. Right now I have because my kids have come home because of the craziness. I have four dogs in the house oh. right now. So I am I'm up against the uh, allowable requirement in Montgomery County, but it's all good. Oh, you're a good daddy. Well, very briefly, I had a chat with a friend of mine, um, MJ Austin. She's a stellar nurse, just retired from Jefferson after 43 years. And we were talking about COVID. She said, I feel so guilty. I should be there helping. And I know if she got the call, she'd go back. But in a different way, MJ is still bringing comfort to other people in need. She joined the Tri-State Canine Response Team. Now, this is an organization, Joe, with certified, trained handlers and dog teams. They understand the value of the bond between humans and animals. Animal-assisted activities, they bring dogs to visit children in school and in nursing homes. Animal-assisted therapy for people who are ill, like in hospitals. And in crisis response, they visit communities in crisis, victims of disaster. It goes on and on. Well, I had a chance to speak to the president, Janice Campbell. She founded the group in 2015, started with five dogs. Now they have more than 55 and in five years, they've visited more than 200,000 people. Sorry, 200,000 people. And like all true champions, she credits her success to the entire team, not just herself. But with the COVID restrictions, they can't enter nursing homes, but they still visit. And in fact, that afternoon we spoke, she had organized a puppy parade. So dogs walk and parade at the nursing home in front of a large window. All the residents are lined up. The doggies had bandanas, and they carried paddles with names of the residents and messages of love. Imagine that. Remember, COVID, not even a family can visit a nursing home. So these people are lonelier than ever. And 
Janice said the therapy was just as much needed by the staff as the elderly residents. And then she went on to say that by invitation, Dave traveled to El Paso after the Walmart shooting, Parkland, Florida after the shootings in the Baptist Church, California wildfires. You should see the pictures of the firefighters getting comfort and stress relief from these dog visits. They also have a six-week club that teaches children in school about therapy dogs and invites them to volunteer as junior handlers. So with COVID school closings, now they have videos on their website, especially special ones for children with autism. On Woof Wednesday, the dogs wore hats. And the kids were invited to wear hats too, which helped them talk about what they were feeling. And it goes on from there. Now they're working with teen victims of human trafficking. And these are young people who can barely speak about their horrific experiences. And once they meet a dog, Janice says, the bond is formed, they find comfort, and they begin to open up. So Janice Campbell and MJ Austin are this week's Your Real Champions. So the next time you look at your four dogs, Joe, maybe we'll, we'll sign you up to be a volunteer for this. I, <laughs> I love it so much. And everything that you said and everything that you uh, referenced uh, is so true. Doc, it is it, it is just so uh, it, it's just so through, so true in terms of the comfort and everything else. I absolutely love it. I mean, they're just that's it's the um, unconditional love with those little soft eyes that look up at you and wag the tail. And if you want to become certified as a volunteer or have your dog certified and trained, visit Tri-State Canine Response Org. That's a little hard. Don't worry, everything's on the Your Radio Doctor website, which is yourradiodoctor.com. Tri-State is T-R-I-State, Tri-State Canine Response.org. I have a few other things I'd like to mention, Joe, that will be on our website. Last week we talked about the city of Philadelphia has a great website, a wonderful resource, Philadelphia, or excuse me, phila.gov. Last week I said philadelphia.gov. It's phila.gov. Resources for COVID testing, where to get food for those in need, I also want to remind you that nutritionaldevelopmentservices.org has food cupboards, soup kitchens, meals for children. And please hang your American flag to support not only the COVID patients, but all who serve all of us. And send a photo of your home or business with info to, or to our website um, or to info at yourradiodoctor.com and share stories about your real champions. Somebody who's out there working despite the risks or somebody who's doing special work in the community like Janice and MJ. And think about donating blood to the Red Cross because they're short of blood not because people need more but because people aren't showing up to donate. All of this is on yourradio.com, or excuse me, yourradiodoctor.com. And as always, we thank you for joining us. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Stay six feet apart because, Joe, we all know your health is your wealth. Well done and a great job today uh, by Dr. Marianne. And we thank all of our listeners for tuning in to your radio doctor. Uh, and we thank you for being there every week as the show comes on and is delivered to you every Sunday morning uh, right here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. As we say goodbye uh, on this Sunday morning, we're going to pe- uh, play you one last tribute or one last audio clip from...
from the Swab Squad. Dr. Marianne will return right back here next Sunday on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great day, everyone. One thing I want to do is, I don't know if you've heard, I uh, I have a, a thing on my show we call 12 Days of Giveaways. Um, it's a little thing we do at Christmas, and we give stuff away. And um, Anyway, you may have heard about it. So when we're able to get... When we're able to get back into the studio, I'm going to dedicate one of the 12 days of giveaways to all the people on the front lines, and I'm inviting each of you to come to California to be at that show for 12 days of giveaways. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.